0: Welcome to Evolve to Succeed, the podcast that brings together business owners, leaders and experts to talk about their business journeys and provide them with invaluable insights and explore the link between personal and business success. I am your host, Warren Munson, founder of Evolve. I have previously founded, grown and successfully exited three businesses in the business services and technology sectors. I have a passion for helping and advising businesses and seeing them succeed. We all know that leading and running a business comes with its own unique joys and challenges and Evolve provides the advice, guidance and support to the business, you and your teams on that journey, be that if you're starting, growing or looking to exit or step away from your business. We do this through our ignite, thrive and optimise programmes and services which include strategic advice, coaching and mentoring, leadership training, Funded business support and so much more. If you want to learn more about Evolve, then please do go to evolveadvisory.co.uk or connect and message me on LinkedIn. For now, though, let's just get on with the show. Welcome to part one of our countdown of the top 10 episodes for the Evolve to Succeed podcast for 2023. It's been another great year for the podcast with tens of thousands of downloads and the introduction of some video episodes as well as several well-received live events. As ever, the team at Evolve have endeavoured to bring you a great mix of individuals from a variety of sectors and backgrounds, each with their own unique stories, principles and perspectives. And for these two special episodes, we've handpicked the conversations that really stood out and received the biggest response from you, our listener. So please enjoy our selection of the 10 best episodes for 2023 as we pick out some of the highlights of those conversations, starting this week from number 10. Joe Barry serves as the founder and managing director of Platinum Care Solutions Group, a renowned provider of care solutions in Hampshire for more than two decades. Platinum Care, along with its affiliated companies Acre Care and Safe Harbor, Stands as the premier independent care group on the south coast and it's earned this recognition through various different awards. What struck me about this conversation with Joe was Joe's commitment to empathetic leadership and the value she shared around undertaking acquisitions. Over the last, so that was well nearly 20 years ago, so over the last 20 years, growing the business significantly, and we'll come on to talk about that, but you've also you know, developed your services, haven't you? From being that, I suppose, recruiter, provider of temporary staff into um, care homes to, you know, providing sort of in-house direct services. I mean, how did that all come about? Is it just been an evolution? Was there a plan? You know, did you always have the aspiration for the business to be what it is today, Joe?
1: That's really interesting, actually. So when I very first started the business, Um, I was busy I was like a mad duck paddling so fast to keep things going as well I had three children I was raising them by myself so I was just such a busy busy person I had limited opportunity to horizon scan and see what was actually really going on Um, and then as the business grew I, I, I I managed to recruit people beneath me almost so that they could do the jobs that I was doing so it gave me an opportunity to take a breath look where the business was and have a look to see where it was going, what was happening. I've always been really interested in local government and and where things go in terms of people's um, choices and care. And I started to realise that people actually wanted to stay at home. Although we have some wonderful care homes, it was a choice. People, If people wanted to stay at home, then they should be allowed to be at home to receive the care. And that, and that time... That was when I had the opportunity to go, okay, where can we move now? Where can I move this? I made sure that the business was built on very strong foundations. I I built it so it had scalability. I invested very early on in processes and systems and back office support so that I could scale when needed. So I decided around 2009 that I was going to um, explore care at home. And that's when we opened, we, we opened up around 2010, for uh, care at home. And since then, it's the supply has swung from uh, recruitment to care at home. And the majority of my business today is all delivering care at home.
0: Is there any other tips and thoughts you'd give around how you've achieved the growth that you have, Joe?
1: Well, obviously, there's two metrics, aren't there? There's the financial metrics that show that you're doing well in terms of you've got you, you make enough profit to reinvest and and and, um, and move forward. But there's also the investment that you give your staff. Um, some of my staff have been with me for around 15 years, and um, I believe that the majority of my success is based around the people that I have working in the business. Be that, be that carers that have worked for me or nurses that have worked for me since the beginning, to my office staff. I, I've, I believe I'm an empathetic leader. I believe that it's about listening to what they want in their job and in their, in their role. They're there for nine hours a day or eight hours a day. It's important that I ensure that they're happy there. And I believe that that's probably the big part of my my success is the investment that I give my staff, whether that's time investment, whether that's training, or maybe it's just the empowerment that I give them. I I, I let them run their departments quite autonomously. And uh, yeah, I think that's probably my big, if I, if I was to give anybody a piece of advice, it's, it's to trust the people that you're employed because you can't be everywhere. You can't do everything.
0: When I listen to you speak, um, you know, during the course of this conversation, you're so passionate about the way you do things, the approach you take, have you had challenges? sort of you know positioning your values the mission statement the way in which you do things the kind of people that you want to employ when you've made acquisitions has there been that kind of I suppose you could call it the change curve isn't it has there been times and you've you've gone through it and thought I'm not sure I have done the right thing and what and how have you put things right if you have seen that maybe you haven't
1: yeah no I think my first acquisition I don't know whether it was because I'm slightly naïve or because it was a shock for the, the other business going through the change curve, as you as you rightly said. So, I think the first one, I thought they would be really quite excited about being part of the business, and they really weren't. <laughs> <laughs> That's a funny <laughs> and, they, and they really didn't want me to, to buy them and, and take over. They were a, a small business, and I'm proud of them today because they're on the journey. They're a huge success and they're very much part of the business. So Safe Harbor was the business that was was my first business and it was owned by a lovely lady, much to my detriment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and she loved the business as much as I do. So it's very difficult when you take over from someone like that. You're not mm. saving them. You, you, I, I thought, okay, I'm going to make this so much uh, easier for them. I'm going to give them way more money. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I thought there was lots of wins for me. I was naive there because they we were loved by the previous owner, and that was the big challenge I had to overcome. And it was a lot, a lot for me to learn from. Um, I had to take a bit of a step back, not be so forthright. And oh, we're going to do this. We're going to do this. It was a very slow, slow process, and it worked. But I did have to quickly check myself and, and decide. Actually, you're going to be much slower at this, Joe. You're not going to be able to do that, and you're not going to be able to do this.
0: Up next is Carly Germain, who holds the position of CEO and founder for the solicitor group Woodstock Legal Services. A particular area of expertise for Carly is dispute resolution. And on the podcast, she shared her insights and counsel on this subject, extending beyond property disputes to encompass a broader context. The conversation also covered diverse topics, including the discussions on female empowerment, progressive leadership, and the anticipated impact of AI and the metaverse on the legal sector in due course. Because you'd worked for some very large firms. Yeah. What, at what point did yeah. you go, okay, I'm going to start my own law firm?
2: Yeah, do you know, I think I always had a little bit of frustration, a little bit of a bug in me. I was always okay. the one that was like, why are we not doing this? Yeah. You know, and from quite, you know... young age in a firm you know um, quite junior and saying why are we not looking at this area of service why are we not looking at this area of litigation for repeat business and I used to find it a touch frustrating that your ideas weren't being listened to as much as you'd want them to be Um, but that was fine and you know I'm very loyal and you know I'm still happy to do it where I was and I think but the turning point for me was falling pregnant with my first Child, okay. now I have three. Um, but when I fell pregnant with Jasper, I just couldn't see how I would be the parent I wanted to be and the lawyer I wanted to be in a traditional law firm setup. Okay. And I just couldn't. I remember being on maternity leave and thinking, I've worked so incredibly hard to get here. i um, established myself as a lawyer. I'm really enjoying it. Really want to be a mum. Really want to do that really well. And how do I do the two at the same time? And so. You know, Woodstock became the way that I saw that I could do that. Okay. Um, and, you know, along with another colleague who was in a very similar position,
1: yeah.
2: Times and Ledger, you know, we sat down and were like, let's just go for it. Um, and had, you know, the confidence to go, right, we can make this work.
0: It would be good to have a conversation around, you know, how people do and can resolve disputes. Yeah. You know, because that happens, mm. you know, unfortunately, <laughs> it's part of day yeah, to day yeah. business. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's kind of the world in which we busy. live. So, you know, that is an area of specialism for you. Perhaps, yeah. you know, we could discuss some of the techniques you've learned over the years that yep. work best for you when you're trying to resolve conflict.
2: Yeah, we have a little saying at Woodstock that came from me, and it's kill it from kindness, kill it with kindness. Okay. Um, and I think, particularly in litigation, but, you know you'd be surprised about how contentious property lawyers can get when they're, you know, supposed to be working (laughs) to the same objective. But, you know, when you've got somebody on the other side, whether that's, you know, a lawyer or a litigant in person, and they come at you at scale 10 aggression and conflict, actually, if you come down at level three and four it brings them down and it's much easier to try and uh, you know achieve a resolution um and it keeps it calmer and much more enjoyable you know i've never been an aggressive lawyer i don't think it's beneficial for you know your client um and it's not enjoyable either um there's you know but there is a lot of aggressive lawyers out there um, and then I think the other thing for me, I've always been a very much a big picture lawyer. Um, I don't think that came straight away, um, but you know, quite early on, I've always tried to look at what the end goal is. Yeah, what
0: you're trying, to, what's the yeah, because actually,
2: yeah. the issues in dispute are largely irrelevant. Yeah, it's the outcome, you know. And I think if you focus too much on the issues in dispute, yes, you have to know them. Yes, you have to, you know, have your evidence surrounding them, but. If you focus on what's a good outcome for your client and what's, you know, what's probably a good outcome for the other side, that's how you can, you know, reach a
0: really good resolution. If you read certain papers and certain articles and certain bits on social media, they, they will say that AI is yeah. going to kill the profession, <laughs> yep. in particular, yep. the legal profession. Yeah. I mean, where's your view on where the legal profession is going to go in the next five to 10 years? And is AI going to have a real impact on it? Um,
2: I'm a massive fan of technology. And that's something where, you know, the great thing when you start a law firm from scratch is that you have a complete clean slate. So not only can create the culture you want, you know, you can bring the people you want, you can bring in the technology and you can look what's out there and go, okay, what technology is available that will allow us to do our job in a, you know, really progressive, efficient way and deliver really great client service. and so I'm always willing to look at new technology out there. I don't think AI is going to be the death of lawyers at all. Um, I played around with it a little bit. I think it will help, and it, like I say, I think it might be a tool that, particularly if you're a lawyer dealing with contract drafting, for example, where you can be more efficient, um, perhaps you know, reduce human error, that sort of thing. But I don't think it's going to, you know, not lawyers off the, the table. Kill the profession. No. Do you know the one thing I think? And I think I could see us using at Woodstock quite soon is um, you know, VR headsets and the metaverse. You know, we've always worked, we've done hybrid working, remote working before the pandemic. Yeah. So obviously it was very interesting to watch everybody, you know, Scum <laughs> by, and by yeah. heading down to Comet, grabbing laptops. But, you know, we were always working that way. Um, and I still love to get people in a room as much as I possibly can, because I think it's incredibly beneficial, but there are times when you logistically can't get everybody there and actually you know, if you've got a room of six people, but there's a couple of people that aren't in the room, that makes them feel a little bit alienated. So I can really see how, you know, you're all popping on your heads there, that, you know, people feel much more together, you know, in a virtual sense. You know, there's, you know, you can't do away, you can't beat being in a physical room together. Yeah, it's it's different. There's energy, there's... Yeah, yeah. and the the mannerisms that you pick up off people. Um, But, you know, I think, yeah, I could see us doing that in the not too distant future.
0: Brilliant, fantastic. And so heard it here first, the legal <laughs> profession isn't dead, AI isn't going you know, to change the world for you. I suppose it's just going to, I suppose it's for all, it's just going to perhaps make it more productive, isn't it? And more efficient yeah. and more, yeah. yeah, and, and allow the human to do the thing that the human's great at, which is yes. the final bit of advice, yeah. the interaction, understanding yeah. the emotions and all of those um, other things that we're talking about celebration of our 200th episode. I mean it's remarkable to think we've made our 200th weekly episode but we released this episode in October and as part of that we landed a very distinguished guest in the form of Kate Adie. Serving as the BBC's chief news correspondent from 1989 to 2003, Kate reported from various war zones globally. Following her tenure, at the BBC, she transitioned into a freelance presenter role on the BBC Radio 4. Throughout her 14-year career as a news correspondent, Kate covered a wide array of significant events, ranging from the Troubles in Northern Ireland, the Lockerbie bombing, the Tiananmen Square protests, to the conflicts in the Gulf and Yugoslavia. Her experiences, including encounters with leaders such as Colonel Gaddafi, And she even survived being shot at at point blank range. The discussion, as you probably would expect with Kate, was really candid and has great value for everybody in
3: terms of her perspective on life. Turned up on the Monday morning and found myself in a real newsroom. Now, I hadn't been in newsrooms, either in Durham or Bristol. They were entirely male setups. No women worked in it. I mean, it was very rare, and in regional telly as well. And so I went to the news meeting at 9 o'clock and was very nervous. And at some point, they were dishing out stories for people to do, and they said, oh, uh, Kate's new here this morning, um, but we need someone to go to Barnstaple to to interview some people at an old people's home. And I said, fine. I've done that before. I thought, no, it's fine, you see. So I whizzed out of the newsroom and found where they kept tape recorders and headed out there, you know, sort of clutching a up. Where's Barnstable, you know? And 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 went out the door. And a bloke followed me and sort of caught up with me. And I said, hi. I said, oh, my name's Kate. I'm, I'm new here this morning. He said, I'm Colin. And I said, I really can't wait. I'm going to Barnstaple. I've got to do a story there. I've got a story there in an old people's home. He said, yes, I'm coming. And I said, why? He said, well, this. And under his arm, there was clearly a camera, a rather big one. He said, it's for, as if to an idiot, (laughs) television. It's a camera, and
0: that was when the penny dropped. Was it? Well,
3: you know, I was completely <laughs> gobsmacked. I turned out I was actually working for the tele programme in the evening. One morning, I got a tip off. I was living in Brighton, covering that area for South. That from my neighbour that there'd been a murder up the road. He said you should go and look at it. So I thought, well, out the door. And it was. And it was the only murder I've ever been to where there was one body sort of slumped over the railings of the fire escape all in view of the passing traffic and the large crowd underneath. Wow. It was absolutely the most bizarre scene.
0: (laughs) Not an everyday situation. (laughs) So,
3: quite simply, I phoned the crew, everything, got them over, did the story, hadn't a clue what I was up to, got the can of film, and... um, Then went to a public telephone box. This tells you how long ago this was. So I thought, "Mm, initiative, you know, and rang the name. I've got the... And he said, I was interrupted in my stream of description by the voice that, I'm very displeased. You should have been at Ditchling at 11 o'clock this morning for the ladies' embroidery exhibition. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I, I didn't actually quite agree with that and I think I said so over the phone in no <laughs> uncertain terms and he said well you're fired I was fired and amazingly I was picked up it's a long story but to cut it short I'd done a couple of stints in London the phone went would you believe 20 minutes after I got home and I said well I've been fired and they said can you do Saturday and Sunday in London I said yeah and they said well you'd better stay
0: <laughs> That's how I got it I, And you never look back I
3: became a television reporter The point is as a reporter Is that you are in 99% of the cases Not the one who's getting the worst damage yeah, You're not the victim are you You're watching people having their houses destroyed in front of them Their children are dead You're reporting on it but they have to deal with far, far more. And you have a job to do. You have to tell the world about it. You have to say what is happening. You have to be precise. That occupies your mind, mm. which says, I have a job to do. And when you think about it, we're not in the same league as people with medical skills. But there is no point, I keep saying to people, as if you were the sister in A and E, in a hospital, and victims of a terrible incident turn up. It's no point in the sister from an A standing there saying, "Oh, this is terrible. Mm-hmm. Oh, it to... you get on with the job so you're trained front for." Front you? Now, reporting isn't quite in that level, but it is at a certain level that you have to tell people about it, that you need to inform. With I suppose an underlying feeling it'll be investigated, questioned, we'll see what's happening. Maybe stop it, all of these things, yeah. spread the information. It's not at the medical level, but it is at a level, I think, of being useful. And you've got it you've got to do it. Yeah. And to do that you have to focus, you have to think, you have to be practical, you have to keep a grip on yourself, especially if you're going to go on camera or be recorded. Yeah. You've got to say, I've got to get all my ducks in a row and tell what I'm seeing. And that kind of behavior through something helps you.
0: So we're now at number seven and coming in at number seven on our countdown is Adam Walker, who since 2001 has served as the owner of Adam Walker Property Company. Additionally, he holds the position of director at the real estate consultancy Recreate and more recently co-founded Foundry, a venture focusing on co-working spaces designed to empower local businesses. The reason we got Adam on the podcast was he had launched and opened a Foundry which has been really successful in Paul, our local kind of marketplace, and we wanted to find out more. Displaying innate in entrepreneurial spirit, Adam initially co-founded a highly successful coin-operated and gaming machine supply company with his uncle at the age of 19. He shares his story and also the important personal and business lessons he learned from the unexpected passing of his uncle, his experience of having grown and exited a business at the relatively young age of 33, and his passion for regeneration. Do you think there was a distinct advantage that you... Because there's kind of a lot of speak about this. You know, should people just get on, and get out there, start their first business, get going, or do they go get a career? Do they go get experience? And there's probably pros and cons to both. But do you look back now and and just think, you know, thank God I did it when I did? I think
4: when you're young, you're eighteen, nineteen, without the commitments, perhaps that we yeah, all no responsibility. Yeah, so. I think I think that that certainly helped me. Um, uh, Grow the business quick quicker, yeah. um, and it enabled me to to be more focused. Perhaps, although saying that, I think I'm working harder now than I've ever worked. Um, <laughs> Life at, doesn't get easier does at forty two. Um, but um, yeah, I think for, for me, the, the, the when I look back at that period of time, I mean, I can remember it was just me, and I can remember in the early days a sack barrow truck, me, and my pickup truck and a who wants to be a millionaire quiz machine every night and i wouldn't stop until i put that machine into a pub somewhere in the southwest of england and it went on and on and on for years like that where i would go in meet the landlord do a deal shake hands sign you know some piece of paper yeah some form (laughs) of contract to say that he'd received a three thousand pound machine from me and hopefully it'd still be there in two weeks when i came back to empty the cash box um, so yeah, it was a, it, it was a real uh, eye-opening and um, it was a great experience because it taught me how to talk to people. It yeah. taught me how to, um, to do deals uh, and, it, and it taught me everything I needed to know at that stage about scaling.
0: You had um, your uncle with you. You know, you obviously co-founded the business with him. He was there as a kind of guiding arm by the sounds of it, but you know, Read and, and I hope you don't mind me touching on this, Adam. That in two thousand and four you lost your uncle, and so what impact did that have on you and have on the business? Yeah, it was it
4: was a shock. It was a, it was sudden. Um, he was a Kevin was a, Kevin Walker. Um, he had a business called Kevin's Cloth Emporium, KCE. So his main business was pool and snooker. Okay everybody knew him in the industry you you you'd never forget kevin if you met him once uh he was loved in that scene and that world of snooker pool um he was british champion table football player okay you know he'd be on the telly he'd be off in uh he'd be off in mauritius with barry hearn at the Bar- at the uh, marlin world cup every year and yeah. and uh and you know he was he was a he was a great character he lived a, he, he passed away at 47 but he lived he lived the life of of 10 men he he really did and wow. um but um yeah it, it was it was a difficult time for us cuz he had three kids yeah um three young kids um so it was a it was a real shock for us all um and his business needed to be run needed to be continued um i remember when it happened and i immediately got in my car and drove to london he was based in west london and um before I knew it, I was going to China to visit the factories because we had he'd he'd be constantly buying containers of, of product from China. And before I knew it, I was in China, sat in front of factory owners. I was 23 years old yeah. and we're talking about three, four hundred thousand dollars worth of debt um, because, you know, Kev kev was a really good guy. Everybody loved him. They gave yeah. him credit. He had a fantastic business. Um, he was a real innovator in that world. So, yeah, it was a, it was a tough time. It was. It was difficult. But again, um, I guess that taught me about resilience. Mm. It taught me about when you build a business, you need to build in resilience. You need to understand that key man, if things do go wrong and people, you know, things like this do happen. Yeah. So big lesson for us. Um, Kev, never far from my mind, from my thoughts every day, makes me laugh every day. I was thinking about some of the stuff that we did together. And because of him and, and what his opportunity, the opportunity that he gave, that he gave to me, uh, I will be forever grateful. My dad ran a construction company that I worked for, got my trade, I said I left school. And he employed about 160, 170 people. And he ran that business from our garden shed. Yeah. And it was not good. It was not a great environment to grow up in. You know, I think we look back, we had good times. Yeah. We had some really desperate times as well. And I watched my mum and dad really struggle, really, really struggle, financially, ups, downs. Um, my parents lost their home, you know, back then. Wow. Banks would take your house, you yeah. know. Um, and my mum would, on a Thursday, go to NatWest and pick up an insane amount of cash, because in 1988, there was no backs payments or check check yeah. checks
0: those are wage runs would be
4: fulfilled it was wage runs and it was <laughs> little brown envelopes and me and my little sister stamping them with the hours worked <laughs> you know nine hours Monday to Saturday or whatever and yeah and it was the screaming matches at night with my mum and dad because yeah. cash flow you know when you're employing that many people yeah, and it's very very difficult and I, I witnessed that and I also witnessed them not having anyone to turn to they were trying to run there, they, they were the solo entrepreneurs they were isolated entrepreneurs in a garden shed that saw their accountant once a quarter yeah. and I realised that what we could do was create these spaces and curate these spaces where my dad 20 years later yeah. my dad could have been in that space in one of those crates in one of those offices in the foundry in the foundry's members lounge and be able to easily knock on Warren's door and say hey Warren I need a bit of advice you need a bit of help yeah. need a bit of HR advice I need a bit of support on growth and, yeah. and I've got cash flow problems, whatever it is. And I can see that my dad just didn't have that. didn't have that. And he ran that business for a very long time at that scale. And sadly, it did cost my
0: dad his mental health. Our final guest for today's episode is Mark Trent, CEO at Charles Mm -hmm. Trent, a fourth-generation family-run vehicle recycling company boasting nearly a century of industry-leading experience. Founded in 1926 by Mark's great-grandfather, the company has expanded its operations across multiple sites and gardened a global customer base. In our discussion, Mark delved into the various topics, including the company's latest venture, a groundbreaking 100,000-square-foot facility in Paul. This facility, the first of its kind worldwide, operates a 17-hour shift processing vehicles of all types. In the challenging world of family businesses, I was so impressed with the manner in which Mark, his family and the business had navigated its path to be in such a great market leading position. And when did you
5: really take the reins of the business, and you know what happened and enabled you to do that? I suppose I think my father was, you know, being the first born and being first out of school into the business. I think my father was the one that encouraged me to do do the most. Um, you know, yeah. there's a huge amount
0: of pressure, that expectation, I suppose, was on. Your oh, show. I it's... think
5: it, you know, from even from the very first, you know, first day you, you, you turned up there, he gave me a role. I had to start at seven o'clock in the morning, and I worked in. At the time, we bought a very small trans small transport company sat alongside the the original facility at Paul and I, I he started me off as a lorry fitter which I did not enjoy for for anything but that's where he wanted to start me I he soon came out of that back into the into the main yard and and what you know I was set upon different tasks within the in the, in the in the business at a very I guess very young age it was really really interesting
0: brilliant and you know what are some of the joys I suppose we'll talk about some of the challenges but I'd love to start with some of the joys what are some of the joys of running a family business, do you see? It?
5: I think the joys of of a family business is that you when you start working alongside other people, they become part of the family, yeah as well. I think you know there's no there's no heirs and graces within within a family business. It's very much you know the, the families family businesses are so passionate about what they do, and I think that's been a real king, and that passion soon rubs off on other people, yeah. and that's been really good to see and and obviously that's evolved over the years as well.
0: I suppose it's the same as any only owner-managed business, but that is accentuated, isn't it, in a family business, is that there is a belief and a passion and a history and something that ties everybody into the business that gives it a sense of purpose and direction. And you, and it's about how do you uh, harness that, I suppose.
5: Well, I think like any 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 business, you've got to keep pushing forward, and I think you've also got to look at what, what's happened in the past. Yeah. Um, so you you know. Th- pushing for you know forging pushing forward uh forward in a business you you've got to be thinking of the future but you've obviously got to be learning from the past you know there's a lot of good things that you know the second or the first the second the third generation in a lot of um i would say a lot of uh good things that they instilled within the within the families but we had a very good work ethic that was one of them it was certainly that was that was probably the Priority, the number one, high graft over over how you know how the the direction of the business, um, and obviously one of the other things is, is, is be honest. You know it was it was very much that you you have to be honest if you if you shake hands back then it was every deal yeah. was done on a on a handshake, and even if someone you got more money offered for something, you st- stood on your deal. So with, the two things that was instilled with me for, or for myself and my two brothers at a very early age was you know work hard be honest yeah and you know they're they're good they're good traits to have
0: absolutely they are and what are some of the challenges of running a family business and do you feel the pressure of being the custodian um, of the business
5: I think that's a really good question I think the first one is the custodian and that's what i am a custodian we we certainly are we we were held, we were handed the baton um right the way back in the 1990s you know 99 yeah. i took over the business from my father um and you know and, and like i said he held that for 50 years um so it was quite a challenging time for the family at the time yeah. it was uh, you, know, we, you know what we know today was the right decision but you know you have to ad- adapt to to the changes that the business is doing and if you You know, if you see things differently, you have to you have to work forward on that on that. Even now, even I've been doing it now for 41 years, I don't want to stop pushing the business forward. It's got to keep moving. And we're definitely gonna come and talk about that because
0: fascinated to have a conversation about how you've innovated the business and how you're driving the business in and now and in the years years ahead. But going back on that, it's quite interesting, isn't it, to see that your father's that time probably spent with your father that hour, hour and a half every day was like a kind of doing an MBA, real life MBA of running a business. And I, and I suppose that was what gave you that grounding to, I mean, must have, you know, to become the MD of the business at a relatively young age. Yes. To then take the business forward. Yeah, I, it,
5: it was. It was for me. It was a, it, the greatest opportunity. Came in about 1999. And I was given the opportunity. My, you know, we sat down and we said, look, you know, we, we unfortunately father had some ill health, so um, okay. which wasn't great for him or the business. Um, and it was it was a case of, you know, I was doing a lot li- leading up to 1999. I was doing a lot of the stuff that uh, that I wasn't, I, you know, was not hands on so much. It was more more of the business and um i you know i, I said to my father we, we sat down and we had a really good few days chat about it and i said how about i take over the business and he gave me the opportunity which was um i'm for sure i'm sure he, he will say differently but um it, it was both challenging for him to to, to accept that mm. it's time for the next generation to take over but i think you know you ask him today he would he's, i'm sure i know he's very proud because he's told us to so
0: Thank you for listening to the Evolve to Succeed podcast. My hope with every episode is that you've learned something new or heard something that challenged your way of thinking and further motivated you on your path towards becoming a more knowledgeable, informed and inspired individual and business leader. And don't forget, if you'd like to learn more about Evolve and the services we offer and how we can help you and your business confidently start, grow and exit, then please go to evolveadvisory.co.uk. Please also help and support this podcast by subscribing, liking and giving us a positive review on your favourite listening platform. Thanks for listening and see you next week.